Yeah, who knew that Minecraft would spark so much thought? <laughs> Something that I've never actually thought about before this, before the other day. But I got a nice email response related to that episode, the kids episode about the Minecraft celebrity. I mean, there was a lot in that episode, but part of it was dedicated to this Minecraft world that's become incredibly popular with kids, with teens. And it blends in with some of the, the social identity stuff that is going on with kids as well. Uh, but Joe in England emailed me related to that. And we were talking about... Because in that episode I commented about the esotericism. Both, you know, as far as what's going on in that Minecraft world and how... You know, there's all this terminology and language and just the way they think because these kids have have spent so many years expressing themselves in this digital world. Not just the gaming, but then the other online digital worlds that surround those games. And how there's a lot of esotericism that goes along with that, where these kids have, uh, you know, there's all these unique terms. Like just reading that wiki biography of that kid, how um interesting comment there but uh i wonder what that's about <laughs> talking about kids not going to school everybody's thinking about the kids excuse me ma'am what are you what are you talking about i'd like to talk to you about minecraft but that i mean just that plays into what i'm talking about she's saying that I overheard just the tail end of that, and she was just saying how, like, the kids haven't been at school at all. And, I mean, instead, they've been living in this other world. They have been, not just in the video games like Minecraft, but also these digital worlds. And how, you know, there's like an esotericism that goes along with the language used. Like when I was reading the wiki about that kid, R Ranboo which even their names, and they use those names. They refer to each other using those names. Like I saw a video of some of those kids in the UK hanging, hanging out together, and they refer to each other. Maybe it's just for the sake of the video, but I think they probably do this a lot. They refer to each other using their screen names. These are like titles almost. And so that's esoteric. The idea that it's like you've taken on this new name to represent your character in Minecraft. But when you meet up with other kids, these other Minecraft celebrities, which they are. They, these kids are celebrities for sure. Like in one of the videos that had the kids walking around in the UK and a family stopped and asked if they could take the kid's picture. He's that famous. Like this family's kids watch this minecraft celebrities videos and they recognized him in public and they were like on video i saw this they were like oh can we can we take your picture you know they were very polite but they these kids are famous enough among a certain generation that people stop them in public it's incredible um but so their names kind of have this esoteric quality where they are known by these screen names and the kids even refer to each other that way even if they're personal friends they refer to each other that way but then just that language that i was reading in the wiki where it's like 
a hype train, a subathon, many other words that I've forgotten. They were so strange to me. But if you play Minecraft, you know what those mean. And everything works that way. I mean, you could say that about a, you know, about if you work in the automobile industry. Like, I wouldn't be able to tell you the names of most car parts, but somebody who's involved in that can tell you. But what's interesting is it's, we're talking about a world now that has transcended the material. It's still materialistic in the sense that it's here and it's visual. It still involves the senses. It's not spiritual, but it's transcended the organic material world that we live in. But Joe pointed out to me how, you know, to those kids, it's not esoteric though, because it's like they are immersed in it. And she used the example of the Masons, where we look at Masonic imagery and some of the rituals and terminology used among Masons. And to us as outsiders, it's, it's a secret society. It seems very esoteric. But how a lot of their ideas derive from building. And so the origins of a lot of, the, of, a lot of this esoteric Masonic imagery and the corresponding ideas, they actually come from you know, the very practical origins of that. You know, the fact that these men were builders. Hence the name Mason. And that's an important point, you know, that when you're walled off in a certain group, how, you know, even if, you know, it, that stuff, it often comes from some sort of practical place. Like it comes from, from something real. But how the deeper, the, the more deeply involved you are in that kind of community, it gets even more esoteric. But once again, to the people who are involved, it's not because they're immersed in it. And you see that with anything that is immersive like that, where they tend to keep going deeper and deeper. And I mean, you see that in religion, the way that a religion will split off from another one and develop its own terminology and ideas that have roots in the original religion it split off from. But they take on their own, they, they keep going deeper. They develop new ideas or new interpretations of ideas, new symbols. And it becomes familiar to those who practice it, to those who are involved. And it's very easy in that situation to forget that what you're involved with is very esoteric and foreign to anybody who's not involved in it, which is why we as outsiders have a tendency to look at that stuff and be like, what are they even talking about? And I was saying to Joe how, you know, I've even experienced that with mafia research where, you know, the public knows what the mafia is. They know the basics of how it operates, the basic rules, the basic structure. That's just a part of Western pop culture at this point. But how in researching it deeply, there's a lot more that the public doesn't know, both within the mafia, but then even the way that researchers talk. Like if my buddy Angelo calls me, who's a historian on the subject, 
well, I'll go for a walk and be talking to him on the phone. And I've been very self-conscious before when I'm in public because I'll walk by people. And even though I'm talking about something very real, deep within the realm of the mafia, it probably sounds schizophrenic to somebody who isn't uh, familiar with what I'm talking about. Because there's a lot of terminology, there are a lot of ideas and names that are just not at all connected to the way we talk as Americans about most of the subjects that are familiar to people. And so when you're interested in that, and you keep going deeper and you learn more, it develops its own sort of, you develop this esoteric view of it. But to you, since you're familiar with it, it doesn't seem that way at all. But you wouldn't be able to have that conversation with somebody outside of that interest. And I think that's what's going on with these kids, too, where it's like they've been immersed in this, let's say, Minecraft, and all of those things are very familiar to them. But then that's also compounded by these other communities that have formed around it. But then it ties into the social identity aspect, which is that these kids are also exploring their own identity as real people outside of these digital worlds they inhabit. And they don't seem to have a very well-anchored sense of identity at all, which is one of the reasons why they seem to be exploring these alternative identities with regards to gender. And, uh, you know, just thinking about those kids too. It's, I mean, you think about Zoomers, Zoomers, and they're the first generation who I think you could call digital natives, where a lot of them were born. I mean, these kids that I was talking about are like 17, 18 at the oldest. And I mean, so they were born, I think that kid I was talking about, it said he was born in 2003. And he's 18 now. So it's like he was born post 9-11. The internet was already in his house. In everybody else's houses who he knew. There was already online gaming. So all of these things that I was introduced to as I grew older were already well established. And that's even just talking about when he was born, not when he came of age. So he came of age, he was born in 2003, you know, he turned seven in 2010. That's crazy. Because by 2010, all of this stuff was cemented. So he came of age in this completely digital world. And you think about what goes along with that, which is that you play Minecraft. And one thing I noticed when I was reading his little wiki bio, who who knew that I would get multiple episodes out of that? I did. I knew. I I knew that was going to give me a lot to think about. But... uh, you know, reading his little wiki bio, like there was a heavy preoccupation with what they call skins. And I've heard of that before. I mean, I think I've played a game or two where you can change the skin, but that's gotten even more heavily customizable and it's become way more important to people. 
the idea of like customizing your character's skin, giving them a unique look, a unique outfit. And that was something that you simply didn't do when I played video games growing up. Like the characters were pretty much set. Like maybe you would play a game once in a while, like on PlayStation or Nintendo 64, where you could create a custom character, but it was still a very limited outfit. It was still something that was programmed into the game. And I'm, I'm thinking about like some pro wrestling games and things like that, where you could change the outfit of the pro wrestler to like another one of his outfits. But it was all stuff that that pro wrestler actually wore. But like thinking back to the RPGs, which were the most immersive games for me, the games, were, they're long, they're longer than any other game. You know, some of those old RPGs, I mean, even the really old ones, you could easily play those for 30 or 40 hours before beating them. And then pretty soon they were 60, 70 hour long games. If you wanted to do everything, you could really be playing that game for definitely over 60 hours, maybe 80 hours. Lots to explore, lots to do. But they weren't really that customizable. You know, you could level your characters up, but and, and you had a certain amount of autonomy as far as like how you did things you know, making certain choices and things like that. But pretty much everything revolved around furthering this pre-written story and then leveling your character up to win battles and get stronger. But as far as like the character's identity and personality, it really wasn't customized at all. I mean, there was nothing to really customize when it came to the character's identity. And, uh, you know, this reminds me of something I read last night, actually, where I, it was an older guy talking about the changes in Dungeons and Dragons over the years. And I've never played Dungeons and Dragons in my life. I've never once played D&D. &D. But it was a guy who was at least a generation older than I am, who started playing, I think in the 80s, maybe. But he was talking about how he's just noticed a distinct change in the way people play it. Where he was saying when he first started playing, and that he, he originally played with older guys. I don't know if it was a brother or what it was, doesn't matter. But he initially started playing Dungeons and Dragons with an older generation of guys. So this guy's older than I am. And as a kid, he played D&D with guys who were even older than him. And he said it was all focused on battles and treasure. He said there was very little focus on your own character like even though you created created your own character and everything there was very little focus on developing that character's identity and the sort of lore and storytelling surrounding that character he said the older guys that he played with were entirely focused on battles and treasure and the characters were just kind of a, a way to act that out but he said he started to notice a change in playing with different people over the years. And then in more recent years or decades, he said the focus is entirely on the identity of your Dungeons and Dragons character, where the people who play it today, and I'm sure there's all different kinds, but he was saying how the people who are playing Dungeons and Dragons now are way more focused on the lore and identity and story 
of their characters. And I thought that was very interesting because it, it reminds me of the way video games have changed where reading about these Minecraft kids, like it said that the kid who's very famous, Ranbu, it was saying how he does what they call lore streams. So he does like specific live streams that are based on developing his character's lore. And a lot of the attraction seems to be to that. Like when it said there were a hundred thousand kids watching him live, not just watching his videos. I mean, his videos get like four million watches, but just the, the people watching it live are a hundred thousand kids. A large percent of them LGBT. A, a large, it said a large percentage of them, up to eighty-three percent of his watchers, like I pointed out, identify as LGBT. So they're focused on identity to begin with, because 83% of this kid's watchers identify as LGBT, they're thinking about their own identity as human beings, but then what they're interested in about this guy is his character and the identity of his character. It's not so much just how well he plays Minecraft, it's everything that goes along with the identity of his character. So interesting that Dungeons and Dragons, which is tabletop, you know, it's not a video game at all. It's interesting how this guy, and, and this guy's point had nothing to do with any of this. It just kind of had a light bulb moment reading about it because it was a guy just talking about the way Dungeons and Dragons has changed for him over the years, what he's noticed with other players and just trends among players and how he said like it used to be very much focused on the gameplay itself. And he's noticed that a lot of the people playing D&D now, and he saw this kind of evolve, are entirely focused around exploring the identity of their character. And so that's what we're seeing with Minecraft now, where, and these online games. And, and two, he was talking about how this Ranbu guy, you know, he wears suits that match the color of his character. He dresses up like his character while he plays the game. And, he, and if he's on a team that uses the color pink, he has a pink suit that he personally wears. So he's, his, his own identity is influenced by his character's identity, and he customizes himself alongside his character's customization. And that whole skin thing, like I know what it is and everything, but that just wasn't an option. You know, I never really got into computer games. I played Age of Empires 2. I was very into that. I think I, I played The Sims a little bit when, you know, for a little bit. And I think some of that, you know, I remember people having skins for their Sims. Like, I remember people were designing... That was when I first noticed that, is that people were designing custom Sims. But we can see where that's just taken off in full force, where that's a big part of this for them, is having custom skins. It's not just playing the game, it's developing a unique identity for your character. And then the kids themselves are exploring their own identity. They're trying to customize their own identity as people. Because when it says 83% 80, of these kids watching this guy's live streams are LGBT+, I wonder how many of them are just gay or lesbian. I would guess relatively few. Because I, I listened to a few, I, I listened to a couple podcasts and read some things from some guys who are... And, and a woman or two as well who are gay. 
And their perspective is very interesting right now. They have a very interesting perspective because they're, the whole, what's going on with kids today is very alien to these people. Gay people from a certain generation, not all of them, but just at least the ones that I'm paying attention to, feel completely separate from what's going on with the so-called LGBT plus group, especially the younger crowd where they kind of, many of them feel like their own culture that they built is being eroded. There's a guy in particular, he does a podcast, and he's, I think he's in his late 40s, and he went to college in the early 90s, and he's very effeminate, he's a very effeminate, there's no mistaking, you know, whether or not he's a gay man. And uh, he's very critical of all this stuff. And he, uh, but he doesn't shy away. He's like he's one of these gay men who it's like he sounds gay. You know, he worships that ideal of like the domestic queen. You know, it's something we're all familiar with, that sort of guy. But he's very critical of all this. And, and many of these guys, and there's a lot of them out there, that's why I think their perspective is interesting, is they're not conservative. Almost all these guys spent their entire lives being Democrats and liberals because that's who the proponents of gay rights were. But they've developed this sort of conservatism of their own. Not that they've taken on conservative values. Not that they've taken on Christian evangelical values. Maybe some of them have. I know there's, there's that guy who was famous a few years ago who was basically a provocateur. And he recently went through gay conversion therapy. But he was a very flaming, effeminate gay man. But he was a pundit. He was looking for attention for sure. But some of these other guys I'm talking about, are they're genuine. They're not just doing this for attention, but they haven't taken on right-wing values. But they've developed this sort of gay conservatism of their own because they feel like... Because what is conservatism? A lot of it comes from feeling like the things you care about are being eroded. It's why I say conservatives are always losing ground. And they're always trying to preserve what they have, which is why it's not static. It's like that interview I saw with Tucker Carlson played perfectly into this where, you know, Tucker Carlson, you know, he, he's a pundit on TV, but he, I think he's a pretty simple guy and somebody might question that. But, you know, seeing him interviewed, I think he's a guy who, when it comes to his actual life, I do think that he, he's a fairly simple guy. I could be wrong. That's, the, that's at least the image he wants to give. But he said in this interview I was watching with him, and I, you know, I think it doesn't matter what you think about him. I think it's interesting to see a guy like that who you only know as this TV Fox News pundit. It's interesting to see him talk as a guest on somebody else's show. And it wasn't a TV show, it was a podcast. And... He, but, he, but he made a comment in that where he's like, I just wish things would go back to 1985. And I thought that was so funny because it's like 1985, huh? Like, that's probably, the, that's probably around the time that he was a young adult. And he was probably having a great time. So it's not like he wants to go back to some archaic, you know, version of tradition. 
he just wants to go back to 1985. And you think about 1985, and you know, the 80s were very hedonistic. Yeah, there was Ronald Reagan, but when you think about the culture, it was a very flamboyant time. It wasn't some, you know, austere, deadpan, church-like atmosphere culturally. You know, and of course that doesn't describe all of it. You know, there was a lot going on with the evangelicals and everything. But still, it was just funny to me that that was, that's kind of Tucker Carlson's ideal, which is what I've said before about conservatives, is that a lot of them just want things to feel the way they felt when they were growing up. It's not even they have some firmly established ideal about when things were perfect. Because the older conservatives of that era... Older conservatives in 1985 would be like, we need to go back to 1955. Things are, are already so far gone. But to a young guy who was just kind of coming of age in 1985, like, like Tucker Carlson, he's like, I just want things to go back to 1985. And I thought that was funny. But I think that's... I think you see that a lot with everybody. It's not just conservatives, but it's... You know, you saw this a lot with people who grew up in the 90s where you know one of the first real like when internet culture really took over as its own thing a lot of it was focused on revisiting the 90s and i referred to it as a nostalgia factory where the internet was it was largely to like revisit the things you grew up with if you were a kid in the 90s and i know from a lot of my peers like pretty much everybody no matter what their political values are. This is something I see a lot with liberal friends. They all are like, man, I just miss the 90s. I just miss the early and mid 90s. And I've seen this even with people who are a little bit younger who came of age around the mid 2000s because I remember 2005 because Miles moved to Olympia and that was when we really started comparing notes about everything that was going on. And a lot of my worldview today, I think, was shaped by those conversations, you know, just comparing notes, having somebody to confirm or deny what you were observing in culture. That's very important to have. And, uh, but we, at that time, we, I was like 19. I think he was in his early 20s. And I remember, though, that, like, we already thought things were gone. Like, in 2005, we were already like, oh, it's over. You know, here here I was, like a 19-year-old. But that was our impression. Like, we were seeing some of the trends. We were seeing the direction things were going in. And both of us were just, were like, it's it's done. It's over. But I'll see these people who are, like, in their, just even just a few years younger. Like, people now who are 30, 31. You know, I turned 36 later this month. So people who are, let's say, five years younger than me, give or take. And what's funny is I'll see them express this sentiment where they're like, Man, things were so good in 2005. Like, you know, I just wish it was 2005. And I just laugh because I'm like, that's so funny to me. Because, like, I'm five years older. And when I look back at 2005, I'm like, that's when things started turning south. That's when I felt like culture was just taking a, a big nosedive. And I think that's something we all go through. You know, I think, I think we all, no matter who we are and what we believe, I think we all look back at... You know, when the world was a little more fresh to us. But that said, you know, and I don't think that excuses everything. Because, I mean, I look around at what's going on right now. 
and it's bad. Like what I'm seeing now is, is true. I don't see how anybody could ever look back on this and be like, that was such a great time. But if things get even worse, maybe somebody will think that. So I don't think it's an absolute rule that we're always just nostalgic for when the world was a little more fresh to us. But, you know, that that's part of it for sure. And I see that with conservatives a lot in particular, or even though everybody feels that way, it informs conservative politics way more. Like, whereas my liberal friends, you know, like I have a good friend, a woman who's my age, and she's always like, man, I just wish it was the 90s. She has progressive values and everything, but it's like, she looks back at the 90s and is like, that's when things were great. That's when I liked culture. Um, but I think a difference with conservatives is they would look back on that and be like, everything now is is complete has completely decayed we need to go back to that in every possible sense like that ends up informing their politics and uh you know so that's just kind of interesting to me is just this is the way that i think a lot of conservatism is that it's just basically like man i wish things felt the way they did when i was a kid there's sort of a relativity to it, but going back to the gay thing, the gay thing, I'm seeing that a lot with gay men who I pay attention to, where this one guy in particular, and it's not just him, it's many of these guys, they've developed this sort of gay conservatism that isn't based on what we consider conservative political values, but it's, it's them feeling like the gay culture that they grew up in and built, to some degree, is disappearing. And they, many of them feel like this new LGBT plus movement, this new mutation of gender identity, they feel like that is chipping away at what they cared about, what they put, what they invested in heavily. And uh, like there's another gay guy that I, I've listened to, and he kind of, he his whole thing is... He, he's, he like rejected the whole, um, he, he really rejects the whole like family values, white picket fence, gay marriage thing. Like he thinks that that kind of took everything good away from gay culture. Like the Pete Buttigieg, like wholesome white picket fence. Like he sees that as like a very dry, culturally devoid mockery of like what it means to be gay and I, I can't comment you know I, I can't comment because like I mean on one hand I think this guy's motivated like he said before that like it basically took all the fun and danger out of it which I think to him is like the hedonism the sort of uh, morally questionable like bathhouse sort of thing which you know I'm I'm the opposite of a sexually hedonistic person, so I, I, I can't understand that at all, and I especially can't understand it from a gay man, but it's an interesting perspective, like when, when he's talked about that, I'm like, oh, you know, that's an interesting idea, you know, this is a guy who rejects the whole white picket fence, gay marriage, sort of wholesome gay couple with adopted kids vibe. Because to him, it just, I think it took away some of that more hedonistic, 
secretive, dangerous aspect that, you know, everybody gets a thrill out of that in their own way. I mean, it's why even straight people cheat and stuff. You know, people get people get off on kind of breaking the rules. So I think he's kind of coming from that point of view where, you know, when gay, when gay men had to be a little more secretive, it added, like, a thrill to it or something. But he also... I think his stance isn't just related to the hedonism. It seems to come from just the overall culture where he seems to feel that, you know, the the earlier gay subculture was more interesting culturally and more came out of it. You know, there were a lot of creative people. And so I think he sees that whole, the gay marriage, wholesome gay couple with adopted kids thing. I think he sees that as sort of creatively devoid too. And he's made some interesting points related to that. But then, since then, because we really, we really only had that for a minute. I mean, people accepted that very quickly. You know, outside of far-right evangelicals, a lot of right-wing people have just kind of taken, like conservatives have just kind of accepted that because there was a new battle to fight. Like the whole gender identity thing has gone in such an extreme direction and things have moved so quickly that a lot of conservatives, you know, they've, they've just kind of, they're willing to even put the old school gay men on a pedestal. And I don't think that's just having a token gay man to like make, uh, to make conservatives look good or accepting or tolerant. There's definitely some of that. You know, there's definitely tokenism that goes along with the conservative movement. But I pay close attention to it, and I think that there's actually a legitimate acceptance, acceptance or sort of a, an alliance, at the very least, that is developed out of this that is genuine. Because hearing the perspective of some of these gay men who feel like their own culture has been eroded, their own identity has been challenged... Many of them are actually lining up with American conservatism, not because they actually believe in all that, not because they believe in family va- or not because they believe in you know Christian values necessarily, but because they feel like that is more complementary to the world that they want to live in than what's happening on the far left, and the way the far left is influencing, you know pop culture and you know mainstream views so that's an, that's interesting to me I don't I don't think it's just tokenism I think it's sort of an unholy alliance in a way not you know not unholy but still like I think it's this this kind of strange alliance that's developed and I think it's why you see some people who are fairly moderate who still have liberal values who are similarly lining up with conservatives and they, they get called conservatives anyway. Like, there's a lot of people now, and I've, I've seen them express themselves, who will call Bill Maher a conservative. And that's the most insane thing in the world. You know, Bill Maher is and never will be a conservative. If you know what that guy's values are, which he's always spoken about, but if you know what that guy's values are, Bill Maher will never be a conservative. But because he doesn't... Because he maintains a balance and he has some views that don't line up with the far left dogma, you know, like I was saying in the episode, the last episode about 
in the Bhagavad Gita, and one of the points Krishna makes to Arjuna is that you don't want to get involved in this war because it's a war between sets of cousins, and you understand that both of them have justifications. But if you're indecisive, a side is going to get chosen for you. So you need to choose a side. And I was talking about how we can see that happening where people who try to be neutral or try to be moderate just end up getting a side chosen for them. And so I think that's kind of what's going on with some of these people who in the past would have considered themselves you know, full-on liberals or full-on Democrats, and many of them are still liberals, like these gay men, like Bill Maher, who's not a gay man. But they've kind of found themselves, in a way, in this alliance with people who they otherwise don't have a lot in common with. And it's not just tokenism. It's not just novelty. I think that they've kind of found common ground with them, and even though there's a lot of uncommon ground, that common ground is more important to them right now. That's what I'm observing. But I, I, I take in that perspective, you know, even though it's pretty foreign to me. But I kind of saw this because, you know, most of the gay people I've known... Like I mentioned, like my mom's next door neighbor for years was a middle-aged gay man and he would have these big parties, so I would hang out with them. And it was always pretty cool. I really enjoyed talking to them. They were all very intelligent and, you know, a lot of fun. They liked to drink. And, you know, they didn't typically get weird. Like every once in a while, like if they were just completely drunk, they would be a little flirty or something. But I'm not one of those guys. I mean, this is a mistake that, you know, I see people make where it's like, you don't need to react to that. I mean, this is a whole other tangent, but it's like when like an old gay dude like tries to flirt with you or something, you just don't, you don't, you don't get offended and make a big deal out of it, but you also don't play along. Like I've seen where like some guys think they need to like play along in like a fun way and it's just really fucking weird. I don't understand that. Like, they think in order to be tolerant, you have to, like, play along with it or something. And it's like, it's not how it works, dude. But, no, but I, I found those guys, like, everyone saw, like, like maybe one of them would get really drunk and say something kind of flirty to me because I was a young man. But I would just be, like, I would just, like, stare at them with a blank face. And that usually got the message across. But they, they weren't, yeah, they weren't sick or perverted or anything. I mean, I think, I think they certainly were hedonistic in their own little community but it's like they weren't looking to do anything bad but no I, I thought they were an interesting group of guys but what's interesting is i remember some of these sentiments already existed with them like here in olympia a lot of the trends that are playing out now nationally were already taking place here and those that older group of guys like they felt really alienated from some of the young liberal crowd because that gender stuff was already happening here and they weren't into it. And a couple of these guys are dead now, died of natural causes. Like two of the guys who I knew the best, they're dead now. But um, like those guys, I remember they were, they were all effeminate. They all sounded really gay and, and all that. But 
I remember them just making little comments. Like they were, they would do their own thing. Like they really didn't want any part in, in this new trend that was starting to pick up momentum. And at the time I didn't really, you know, I was aware of that trend, but I didn't really know, you know, how, how a gay man who'd been doing, who'd been living that way for a long time. I, I didn't, I just kind of assumed they were all in the same boat actually. And that's kind of the image that's presented to us is that they are, that they all have common interests. But it was interesting that these guys didn't seem to think so back then. And this is 2009, 2008. That was around that time. And I didn't think much of it at the time because first of all, like these, conversa these conversations weren't nearly as intense. The implications weren't as severe. Like one time there was a, uh, I don't know if they were a, a transvestite or if they considered themselves a full-on trans woman, because back then you didn't even really think one way or another about it. That just shows you how quickly things change. But there was a man being a woman, basically, at one of those parties. And that was interesting, because you could kind of tell there was a separation there. Like, you could tell, like, I remember a guy that I knew, one of the guys who passed away, but I remember him kind of making a comment to me about it, or he was just like, I don't know what's up with that. Like, he wasn't being hateful. He was just like, I, that's, be, that's way beyond me. Because why would you understand that? You know, even though you're, you know, a sexual minority, like, why would you immediately understand that thing that's not what you're doing? And so seeing that sentiment expressed even more now, like sort of the, that was just like, th th those are kind of whispers, just little comments here and there that I heard back then. And then like listening to some of these guys today where they feel even more strongly about all this stuff. But it's funny too, cause like I'll be listening to a guy like that, this guy who does a podcast and he had one of his college buddies on who was also an effeminate gay man both around the same age, obviously, they went to college together, and they started talking, and it, and this is a few months ago, and I was smoking weed at the time, and so I was a little bit stoned, and I just kind of had it on in the background, because most of this guy's show is not even talking about that in particular, it's mostly just one of those shows where he kind of, he basically points out all of the, <laughs> he basically like, like, it's basically one of those shows where he just criticizes social justice and he like comments on what people are talking about what's in the news um you know that's most of it it's mostly him just like playing videos and offering commentary on it it's pretty it's pretty indulgent like it's pretty negative i think he just want the guy who does this show i think he just basically wants to complain about these people and he he paints a lot of it as mental illness like his big thing is that many of the people who are in power right now, many of the people who are the most outspoken about these social issues, he feels that a lot of them have cluster B personality disorders and he has a lot of experience with that. So it's basically, basically him psychoanalyzing unhinged political activists. It's a little bit indulgent, you know, it's, 
it can be a bit it can get a bit old but i do i do think he has interesting he makes interesting points and i personally don't think it's as simple as being like they're all mentally ill even though a lot of these people openly broadcast their diagnoses and that's a weird part about all this where you see where a lot of these people just say up front like a name tag you know along with their pronouns they'll be like I'm bipolar, I'm depressed, I have anxiety, I have this. And that's not even an exaggeration. And that's yet another thing that I saw develop here locally in Olympia before it became a widespread trend that you see pretty much all over the internet, all over these videos that kids make on TikTok. Where like part of the introduction process to these people is that, hi, my name's Taylor. You know, my pronouns are this, and I have these personality disorders. That's not even an exaggeration. That's just how they talk. And so they just say that up front. But what's so interesting is like, whenever, when in history was that supposed to convince you to agree with somebody? Like, if somebody said to you, like, here, I'm going to tell you how to think about the world. And if you don't agree with me, you're a hateful bigot. But like, like I'm going to make that argument after telling you I'm mentally ill. And the idea behind that, like when I saw that develop in Olympia, it was generally young women. And the idea was that they were destigmatizing that stuff. And there were, there were some early versions of that that I remember people making a big deal over. Like Catherine Zeta-Jones came out as bipolar 2 and she was doing a lot of advocacy for it but it wasn't like she didn't do it in a way that was like i'm going to introduce myself to someone and tell them i'm bipolar right off the bat it was that she was doing like a lot of pr sort of stuff related to that advocacy work and as a celebrity it was a big deal because here's a celebrity saying i'm bipolar and I, you know, I think she was involved in some nonprofits and some, you know, fundraising and organizations. And the idea was destigmatizing it by openly acknowledging it. And I don't think that's a bad idea at all. You know, even though I challenge these things, I think these are impermanent. I think our understanding of what mental illness is today is very impermanent. And we'll eventually look back and be like, huh, it's funny, that's what people thought it was then. That said, though, it's the way we understand it today. And I don't think it's a bad thing to destigmatize it if we're going to deal with it effectively. But we've seen where like, it started as destigmatization and then it mutated. It mutated into a new self identity. And it's these kids who have taken on the bizarre pronouns, the increasingly obscure gender identities, who have also latched on to the idea of self-diagnosing, for one. Because not all of this comes from having a clinician diagnose them. A lot of it is because, I mean, you can go to Wikipedia and look up a mental illness and it'll list like the DSM standards for uh, you know how someone's diagnosed with that and they'll see like oh it says that 
oh, this, you know, it'll list like the 10, 10 symptoms. And if, if you exhibit, I don't know, five of them, whatever the standards are, you might have this thing. But it's like, you can look at that, especially if you're a vulnerable person. And it's like, oh, I have five out of the 10 symptoms of this. But then you have this confirmation bias where some of these people are looking that stuff up online and they, they because they want to identify with it. They're looking for as many qualifiers, as many ways to identify themselves as possible. So you have a lot of people who are self-diagnosing, but the self-diagnosis also involves a strong degree of confirmation bias. Like, oh, this personality disorder is prone to constant anxiety and worry. They have a tendency to do this and this and this. Oh, I do that. Do you really do that? Do you really do that to a pathological degree? I mean, it's like taking a personality quiz online. Or like you're taking a personality quiz online. You can decide what that is. Like you can decide what outcome you're going to get. You can answer the questions on an online personality quiz to get a certain result. You can game the system very easily. It's not that different from that. Like if you want to take the Myers-Briggs or whatever it's called, I think I got it right, the, My the Myers-Briggs. If you want to take the Myers-Briggs, you could easily answer those questions in such a way that you get the result you want. If you want to be an INFJ, you can answer those questions in such a way to be an INFJ and then you can tell your friends that's what you are. And it turns out these kids love that too. A lot of these same kids that I'm talking about love to tell everybody how they're introverted. They're an INFJ. So people have really latched onto that. It started as like, we're gonna be open about our mental health issues and celebrities are gonna come out and say they're bipolar or say they have this, say they have depression to destigmatize it. But destigmatize, de I can't even say it. Destigmatization. Destigmatization very quickly mutated into this sort of pride, a way of making yourself seem unique, but also making yourself into somewhat of a victim because you get sympathy by doing that too. Oh, that must be so hard. That must be so hard to have anxiety. And people do have things. That's the thing too, is some of these people do have things going on. But so this guy with the show, you know, he focuses a lot on that. And he feels that a lot of the people in political power and a lot of these political activists, he, he feels that they have cluster B personality disorder in particular, which is, you know, a set of narcissistic um, disorders um, that are very concerned with control and power and manipulation. And I mean, it's hard to really argue with that. I don't diagnose people. I don't think in those terms. I don't have total faith in that way of thinking. So it, it doesn't really make a difference to me what you call it. But when you describe those tendencies, they're exactly what you see. And as I pointed out again and again, um, those eyes, you know, I know I'm a broken record about those eyes, but it's like, that's one of those things that genuinely freaks me the fuck out. 
how many of these people in these videos and stuff, and they might just be a small selection of people, but I see it with people that I know as well. And I saw it in particular where a bunch of young women that I know during around June 2020 when the BLM thing was taking off, a lot of them were making these like selfie videos and posting them on Instagram, like telling everybody they need to, you know, basically submit like basically like you need to do this and this and this to solve the racial climate. You need to talk about this. You need to address this. You can no longer be silent. And they were making these videos and these are women I know. And I'm not talking about like a hundred people, but enough to where I noticed it. But I noticed they had the eyes. Some of them had the eyes that I'm talking about, the big wide eyes where you can see the white above the iris. Which, like, sometimes, like, since I first started noticing that, I, uh, I try to do that sometimes just to see how it feels. Like, I'll, I'll like, <laughs> this, is ta this is sharing too much, but, like, I've actually, because it's so strange to me to see that, I will, like, put my phone on portrait mode and, like, try to do what it takes to make my eyes do that, and it fucking hurts. Like making your eyes really wide and then like positioning them so that you can see the white above the iris. That fucking hurts my face. It hurts my eyes. Maybe if you do it enough, it becomes natural, but that seems like a problem unto itself. That seems like a problem unto itself if, if you've done that so much that it feels natural now. But I can tell you that just doing it on its own does not come natural to the human face. And I'm not saying all these people are mentally ill or crazy, but it is kind of like a possession. And ever since I started noticing those eyes, I see them. And um, I actually, I brought it up to that guy who does the podcast. I don't know him, but I, I messaged him. I contacted him and I just asked him, like, have you seen this thing with the eyes? And he said, yeah, I call it the cluster B stare. And I laughed because I was just like, oh yeah. So you're aware of it. And you do actually notice it. It's like certain personality types in particular do that a lot. But I noticed that when I saw these videos of women I know who were, and, and you know, I'm not just saying that to pick on women. It just seems like they, I think their peers were saying the whole, like, if you don't speak out about this, you're part of the problem, which is a, a big part of why that thing took off the way it did. If you don't speak out about this in the way that we're telling you to, you're part of the problem. And so I think that's why a bunch of them felt the need to be so vocal about it. And I would never tell them not to speak out about the things that they think are important, but they were all doing it at the same exact time, in the same exact way, suddenly. And I saw a very similar look in their eyes. And their eyes were very big, unnaturally big. And the positioning of the iris and the pupil had a full circle of white around it, where which means their eyelids were completely pulled back and they were bugging, they were deliberately, maybe not even deliberately, which is the scary part, but they were bugging their eyes out. And what's interesting is in old psychological textbooks, 
that's how they depict someone's eyes when they're experiencing psychosis. I'm not kidding. You know, I don't know what it's like now, but in old psychological textbooks, they show people's eyes and uh, they depict psychosis and psychopathy with those eyes. Where And there's a term that I was talking to Miles about it and he there's another term for it that he's aware of. So this is something people are well aware of. And I don't even necessarily think, I'm not, I'm not saying these people are all psychopaths or anything, you know, but I do think, uh, you know, when you think about social psychosis, I, I think that it, I think it plays into that collective psychosis I was talking about that Carl Jung talked about. Everybody knows what collective psychosis is, but Carl Jung was acutely aware of what it is and how freaking scary it is. And so the fact that old psychological textbooks associated those eyes with um, with psychosis, I don't think that's a coincidence. And the only other times that I've experienced that, and of course, I mean, all I have to do is start talking about those eyes and I won't shut up because it's that scary to me. It's that weird to me. And, uh, but the only other times that I've noticed anybody with those eyes, it was one time a family member of mine, a relative of mine, was having a, an, a personal psychosis, I guess you would say. This is, this is about a decade ago. I became very aware suddenly in a conversation that this person was experiencing delusions. And they were trying to convince me that their delusions were real. And it, it was terrifying. Because this person had never exhibited this kind of behavior before. And in this conversation, this, this relative of mine, their eyes were really, really bugged out and big. And, they, and I could see the white all the way around. I could see the white above the iris, between the eyelid and the iris. And they were telling me that I was delusional. Even though they brought the subject up and they were the one trying to convince me of something. I very quickly just let it go because I was when I when I saw that in the eyes, I'd never experienced that before that I know of. I'd never experienced somebody's eyes doing that. Nobody that I know staring at me over a table. But when I saw that, I didn't know what it was at the time. I knew that this person was delusional. But I just, I stopped dead in my tracks and I was like, I'm getting the feeling that I need to just stop this. Like that there's nothing I can do and this is only going to get worse. And then since then, I've seen it a couple other times. Like I had another friend who was experiencing kind of a psychotic break. I don't, not a full on break, but it was definitely something. And their eyes did that. And somebody else there commented on it. It was it was at a party. And another friend afterwards said, like, did you see their eyes? And then and thinking back, actually, I experienced it with a close friend of mine right after high school. And he was going through a break. He was experiencing a psychosis. And he had to be medicated a short time later. And... Uh, 
a friend of mine had just come back into the country after traveling outside internationally and we were having like a reunion of sorts this is like about a year after high school we were having a little reunion and another friend who was there who's doing well now you know his life's gone very well i think he's gotten a hold of whatever was going on back then i think they ended up putting him on lithium or something but all of a sudden like on a dime he just started being really weird at this little gathering and he was looking at us and he, and he was like he was demanding that we let him go home and he didn't drive or anything but he seemed to, he, he seemed convinced that we were like keeping him at this apartment and we were like hey man we're just hanging out you know we're, we haven't seen you know this friend in a long time he just got back in the country we're just hanging out you know, and there'd been nothing weird or confrontational before that. It was just like suddenly, out of nowhere, he just started like demanding that we let him go home. And it's like we weren't keeping him there. But he was clearly experiencing a mental break, and his whole life had had some issues at that time. And we ended up letting him go. Like we ended up just letting him leave. Because, I mean, like I said, we weren't planning on keeping him there. And his eyes were doing that. He was staring right at us with these big, wide, bugged-out eyes. And so, like, it's something that I'd seen in individuals when they're having kind of some kind of individual psychosis, like some kind of something going on with their own mental health. It always corresponded to that. I'm sure with some people it's substance, it's provoked by substance abuse and stuff, but these are people who are actually having mental health issues in their life at that time. So to see it like more recently though, where I don't doubt that some of these people are having their own individual mental health issues, but it's very much rooted in these larger social issues that are going on, these larger political issues that are going on. And to see a bunch of people doing it at the same time, and I've noticed that every single time that somebody is doing that, every, every single person who has those eyes, it's, it, they are unshakably convinced that they are right. It's, they're being very aggressive and confrontational and self-righteous when they're doing that. And every single time, it's like they are trying to coerce you or convince you of something and anything except for agreeing with them or giving in to them and I'm not even sure if that works because I don't do I've never done that I don't care if someone's having a psychotic break I'm not going to give in to their delusion I don't do that I'll do what I can to get away but I'm not going to agree with them and I've seen it before, too, with... Like, I've seen it with religion before, as well. Where I remember, like, there was a woman on a TV show who was a Christian. And she had a complete breakdown on this TV show. It was a reality show. And she was, like, screaming at people, and her eyes were like that. But it was... But she was, she was making religious statements 
about Satan and evil. And again, though, it was like she was coming from this place of self-righteousness. And so I imagine a lot of people have seen it in that context. Like somebody, it's basically like you get a feeling that this person is, it's a, it's a, it's a, a dogmatic look. Like they are completely dogmatic about whatever it is they're saying. And even though what they're saying is delusional, like they, they want nothing more than to attack you with it. So anyway, <laughs> another eye rant, but I, I just haven't gotten over it. I just have not gotten over it because I've never seen anything like it, like the amount that I've seen it since coronavirus and, you know, summer 2020, since Trump, you know, I've never seen anything like it. And I think all of that is the reason why we're seeing it. I believe the reason we're seeing it is because of those different factors. I think it's this biological health crisis it's this, you know, racial, social crisis. I don't know. I'm, I'm losing my words, but but you know, you know what I'm getting at. And then this this political thing, and they're all related. And I think it's it's just it's caused some people to completely lose it, and they've lost it, but in such a way that they they've taken a stance or they've been convinced of a certain stance and then that's almost a way to cope is to like lash out to be convinced to be absolute to be dogmatic and what's funny is I have a good friend who's always going through personal drama you know, I'm not going to name them, but they're always going through it's just one episode after the other of personal drama. And what's so funny is because of that, this person has not been infected at all. Like this person doesn't agree with me about, I wouldn't even say they don't agree with me, but it's like, we definitely don't see eye to eye when it comes to some of the larger issues around the world. And we don't need to, because our friendship isn't based on that. But this person's often going through personal drama that I think you would, you might otherwise think is a bit much to deal with because there's always something. But I think it's almost like, <laughs> it's almost a strange blessing in a way because because of that, this person is like completely unaware of, of all of these other things that are going on. Like, like this person is, is so consumed with like their own interpersonal issues with people that are totally unrelated to larger world issues that it's almost like they've dodged that. It's almost like they missed that. <laughs> it's like it's like they they haven't been hit by it because it's like it's like they were ducking when the bullet was fired. Like it's almost like a cartoon or something where it's like you know someone fired a bullet at somebody and they were walking along and they were like, "Oh, look, it's a penny." And like reached down to pick it up and the bullet just flew over their head and they didn't even know. And just kept going about their business. That's kind of how I feel about this person. Where it's like they've been completely—they're they're pretty oblivious to like a lot of what's going on. And I find it really refreshing. Like even though this person ha often has like issues going on in their life, they're almost always interpersonal with people they know. But it's like because of that, they've completely like dodged a certain bullet. And, and that's so funny to me. 
it's like now is actually a time when like you know getting distracted by your own bullshit might actually you know save you in some way but anyway uh the cluster b stare it was it was good to hear that this guy was aware of it of course he would be you know based on the stuff that he pays attention to and talks about of course he was aware of it but uh, just to finish the earlier point it's like it's just interesting that there there is this whole group of gays and lesbians who feel like the culture that they grew up in and they helped build or were a part of is eroding and i was listening to this guy talk once i think i was going to say this where he was talking to a guy that he was in college with and they're both effeminate gay men and i just kind of had them on in the background and i was a little bit stoned not really paying attention then all of a sudden i just like i started listening to them and like they were feeding off each other and the whole conversation got like super gay like just just in a like a communication sense like the way they were communicating it was like they were speaking their own language and i was like holy shit <laughs> i was just like holy shit like oh yeah like they they do kind of have their own language their own way of doing things and uh, that's what they're trying to preserve you know so like there's like this new like gay conservatives conservatism going on and and they feel like that's kind of being eroded by some of these other things that have rapidly changed because this is kind of what republican conservatives were afraid of which is that like okay you know gay marriage passed and even though there was pushback to it like, it's, it's been much more widely accepted than I think anyone could have imagined even 10, 20 years ago. But it, in a matter of years, we're talking about kids getting brainwashed into changing their genders. We're talking about kids watching a Minecraft player and asking him... To reveal his gender even though he's clearly a boy and doesn't seem to be going for anything else but they want him to explicitly tell them what his gender is because they want to identify as whatever gender he is which kind of you know even if they're doing it in a light-hearted way it adds credence to what Abigail Schreier and people like that have said about this being a social contagion But it's like we went from like just being like you need to accept that gay people are born that way and they uh, just want to be married if they want and have a, have a house and a family you know of their own you know we went from that argument to like kids being like I want this Minecraft player to tell me his gender so that I can identify as the same gender like we got there quick you know, so so even though, you know, some of the stuff that, uh, you know, conservatives were worried about was absurd, you know, years back, like some of the views that conservatives held and still hold about gay people, like I don't agree with, but like the concerns that there would be like some kind of slippery slope not that this is all the result of that 
but I think it is the result of like progressivism moving on to the next thing. It's not that letting gay people get married led to this. It's that like they felt like, oh, we don't have to really push for that as much now. Because that was the big thing. It was like pushing for gay marriage, pushing for gay marriage. Progressives were totally, like if you grew up when I grew up, that was the priority. And it was talked about all the time. Like if you remember like when, when Hillary tried to run before, like in 2008, when Obama ran before, they asked them if they supported gay marriage and I believe they both said no. You know, that was one of the central talking points in politics. And even Democrat politicians said, no, I don't support gay marriage. The same ones who would later change their opinion publicly. But so that was like the big progressive thing is that like gay marriage, gay marriage. And so it's not that I think by legalizing gay marriage, you know, it was a slippery slope to what's going on right now. But I think it's the progressive machine that was like, okay, we got that thing accomplished that we were trying to do all along. And it, it, progressivism had mutated so far already that it was like, well, what's the next thing? It's destroying gender entirely. It's turning gender identity into this perpetually mutating weird you know esoteric religion unto itself and it turns out that people who had a pretty firmly established identity as gay or lesbian aren't on board I mean many of them are sure but there's a bunch of them who are like hey wait a second you know, you, like, I'm not a part of this. And not only that, it seems like you're actually challenging it. Because, like, what got me going on all this was just the, the whole idea that, like, this Minecraft kid... The fact that, like, 83% of his massive audience identified as LGBT. But I would question how many of those are actually L or G. You know, how many of those, because what we're seeing now, and this is something that many gay people are commenting on, is that kids who would otherwise be gay or lesbian are being pushed into these even more obscure categories. They're being encouraged to go into these even, you know, these newer categories that are coming out, or they're being encouraged to become transgender. It's putting this, act, this pressure on kids who otherwise might just be gay or lesbian. And a common talking point you'll see with uh, gay and lesbians who are critical of all this is they'll say, you know, if, if I was growing up now, I worry that they would have tried to encourage me to be something else because I'm kind of a tomboy. Or, or the guys will say, because I'm, because I'm a, an effeminate gay man, I feel like they would have maybe tried to push me in another, into some other category now or tried to tell me I'm something else. So you can kind of understand where all this is coming from, and it's it's interesting that, while I don't know that that many people are speaking out about it, it's interesting that certain people feel very strongly about it. And I, I take in their perspective, because I don't feel like they're, I don't feel like they're trying to do this for attention or to pander to a certain audience or anything like that. 
I think they just legit have legitimate concerns about it, like many other people do. And interestingly, you know, I'm, like I, in that wiki article for the Ranboo kid, it said that he was going to be moving to Brighton. And talking to my friend in the UK, she mentioned Brighton is actually like the LGBT capital of England. And it's where like Antifa is very active. It's like the heart, it's like the progressive left stronghold in England. So it makes sense that this kid wants to move to Brighton. I never would have known that. You know, I just... Everything in... (laughs) Everything in England except for London is the same thing to me. Although I couldn't be more wrong about that. But going back to an earlier point about that, about kids more and more... Like, Generation Z, the Zomers... Like, being the first generation to be digital natives. To have grown up with... Not just an internet connection, but probably a decent one. Like, they weren't born into households that had dial-up internet. They were born into households that probably had decent internet connections. They were born into a world, they came of age in a world... ...where video games are an interactive experience with strangers. And you make friends, because, I mean, that's a thing I've never done. Like, one time I played Age of Empires online. It was free... And so one time I tried to play Age of Empires online and I hated it. It wasn't any, it was no fun because like all anybody was doing was like exploiting the mechanics. Exploiting the mechanics. It was just people trying to build their armies as fast as possible. And it was just like pure mechanic indulgence. Like nobody wanted to like act it out. Like like, like there was no sense of drama or fun. It was just people, like, building armies as big and fast as possible. And, like, just doing everything way too quickly. It just, there was, it didn't breathe. And I was like, fuck this. You know, obviously that's not how everybody plays online games, as evidenced by these Minecraft kids who have lore streams. Doing what we call a lore stream. It's called, it's called having a lore stream. It's what we call having a little lore stream, but they have lore streams, so obviously kids have moved away from that, kind of like the Dungeons and Dragons thing. Where, where it's, it's more about fleshing out stories and characters, but I only played one online game one time and I hated it. But you have a lot of kids now who have grown up with that, where part of this just, you know, my generation was the first one to really have video games in your house that you could play whenever. Maybe you could play some of them multiplayer when your friends are over. But the idea of playing them with strangers and developing relationships based on that was foreign. And, uh, you know, while I did have the internet as a teenager and I was able to make some friends online and things, you know, so many of these kids represent themselves as something else. Like, it's not just that they have, like, a custom character in a video game and that's how they interact with their online friends. And they have a custom skin for that character and everything. Some of these kids, too, live in these fan fiction portals where they're constantly pretending to be something else anyway. Like, there are people who have some, like, anime or furry character that they pretend to be on some, you know, Discord or forum or something or social media like they have this alter alternate identity 
that they pretend to be all the time when they're online. And it's usually something pretty far removed from who they really are. And there's a writer I like, she's written some articles, Catherine D is her name, but she wrote an article about like the way that Tumblr fed into all this. I recommend looking that up. Like she wrote an article about how like Tumblr encouraged these like insular fandom fan fiction communities among young girls. And they also included like some older girls and women who were very politicized and they kind of planted some of the seeds about these ideas. Like they kind of encouraged these girls to explore some of these more socio-political ideas, but they, they came into contact through these like fan fiction sort of, um, you know, where everybody like has a character and they're, they're developing this persona for them and writing this, living in this elaborate fictional world where they're not just represented by an avatar like everybody is who uses the internet, but like that avatar becomes them. And they're interacting with other people in this digital realm who are also represented by an avatar that is supposed to be like an alternate reality version of them. And these avatars, these characters they've created, they might be a different gender. They might be a different species. You know, so these people are basically... And then you think about how, how much time they've devoted to being that. Like outside of their normal lives where they have to go to school, they are living a lot of their downtime as those characters. And then, uh, as that article I'm talking about explores, there's not just one article, there's more than one, but as that article explored, like, that introduced them to some of these ideas that, these, you know, far left progressive ideas that challenge the foundations of who you are, what your identity is, why you feel the way you do, because a lot of these people are alienated as it is. A lot of these people are unhappy with their waking lives as they are and so there's a lot of anger directed at society and the escapism suddenly becomes like that person's preferred way of being and uh you know that's it's it's like there's the fan fiction and there's the games and i'm not against these things i want people to be able to express themselves and all that but i think people are onto something when they when they say that this has roots in websites like tumblr and this girl who wrote about it she herself was was you know on those sites like she herself watched this and i think she manages to be objective while also being critical and that's something that some of these parents have found like some of these parents who practically overnight they say that their child transformed like like their child never showed any any signs or interests in revolutionizing their identity and then you know it seemingly overnight their kids suddenly started acting out 
and behaving in this completely different way. And many of these parents have said that like their kid had been involved in some of these online communities. And then you add in the fact that people's connection to material reality is very, very loose. I mean, I'm someone who, who still, I love my material life. You know, I, I love, you know, being a person who goes out in the world. I, I More than ever, I enjoy interacting with people as long as they don't have those big, wide eyes. Those haunting eyes. <laughs> as long as they don't have those eyes, I'm pretty happy to talk to, <laughs> to people these days. Like, I love talking to cashiers. Like, just small talk. You know, I, I enjoy that these days. Um, so I, I love the material life, you know, that... It might be an illusion, but you know, I like what life has to offer. But even I find myself caught up in these new realms. Like even though I feel like I have a good balance, I feel, you know, like even I get distracted by like looking at what's online, thinking about what's going on in, in that world and how it's impacting our reality. So to kids who are spending all their time doing that and that's all they really know, you can start to kind of understand why things have gotten so strange. Exponentially strange, because that's that's what it is, it's exponential. And, uh, you know, it's understandable why many people are pushing back. It's not to hurt anybody. It's not to try to control other people. You know, because where this becomes an issue, like, a lot of this stuff sounds like wholesome fun. Maybe not wholesome, but a lot of it sounds just like kids and young people kind of having fun and exploring alternatives. Kind of a new counterculture in its own way. A lot of it kind of sounds that way. But like I mentioned in the other episode, one of the issues is that many young people have come to believe that this is legitimate. And that anybody who questions it wants them to die. Like they want them to be oppressed or killed. And they say that over and over again. That anybody who doesn't support this wants them killed. Or is trying to encourage them to commit suicide or something. And you have schools doctors, and now government enabling it. You know, increasingly you see on forms that you fill out online, the drop-down menus and stuff of how you identify and all that, like, this stuff is being legitimized at such a rapid rate. And to go full circle back to esotericism, I believe a lot of this comes from the fact that esotericism fragments. As some, if, if you're involved in a very insular esoteric movement where there's a lot of terminology and ideas that outsiders can't immediately understand and aren't familiar with, and you remove that perspective, you, you become more and more esoteric. Because a part of that is, is competitive. 
A part of that comes from a desire to be unique and to express yourself as an individual. And so you splinter further and further. It's, it's fanaticism in religion. Where when a religion becomes very insular, it fractures. New groups splinter off. And a new, a new fanaticism develops within that. You see that in Islam. It's how cults are formed. And all of these things develop their own language. And they become almost impenetrable to outsiders. And when this stuff gets legitimized or enabled, that's where things get into trouble. It's one thing just to want to live your own esoteric life and not be bothered. But you can see where when you tell someone they no longer have to wear different masks. Because I see this with some of these younger right-wing kids. I kind of try to see what they're up to, too. Like, because they're similar in their own way. Like, some of these younger right-wing kids have grown up in an equally artificial digital reality where they grew up playing video games. They grew up with memes. And so they have a similar sort of esotericism to them where... I've noticed a lot of younger right-wing guys have developed this sort of, like they, they all seem to need to have this like very original take on philosophy. Like fa they'll take famous philosophers and kind of like take some like tiny little branch and just take it as far as it will go and, and, and kind of give their own spin on it and relate it to politics. And, uh, I don't, I don't know, there's a lot I could say about that, but what I'll say is that I've just noticed that they, they kind of have their own similar little esoteric world where they've developed their own lexicon and language, and they're equally kind of separate from everything else. And a lot of them represent themselves online with, like, cartoon characters, and uh, I don't think it's a good thing necessarily. But what I will say about them that I've noticed is that one, they seem to have like a very vivid sense of humor and kind of a self-awareness about that. It's the importance of humor. And the other part is that I think these guys in their waking daily lives when they're offline, I think they have to still wear a mask of normalcy. So even though they get online and they interact with this world of other esoteric kind of counterculture right-wing kids, they have to take that mask off in order to be accepted in their waking lives. And maybe not all of them succeed at that. But, you know, a lot of what they're saying isn't considered polite conversation to say the least. And so I think in order to function, in order to work at a job, in order to have friends, if they have them, they do have to kind of wear a mask of normalcy. Whereas what we're seeing on the other side is they're being told, you don't have to wear different masks. This strange identity that you've created for yourself, 
you know, is, I guess is what you really are. And the world needs to accommodate that. And I think having to wear different masks is good. Like, even though I don't like professional culture, like the idea that that's how a human being should interact, like you shouldn't, being a customer service representative should not be your real personality. And I think there are a lot of downsides to the fact that human beings have to do that, even for just part of their day. Acting like a salesman, acting like a customer service representative, having to pretend to be something they're not just to make a living. And there are some definite downsides to that because some people take that on. Like the person that I have mentioned on here who I knew who worked for a major cable service provider that's notorious for ripping people off and screwing people over. And how like they were, even though they no longer worked for them and when they worked for them, they were just a low level worker. They really internalized that company's policies probably as a way of coping with working there because people don't like to work for them. And so as a way of, of coping with working for them, I think they really internalized that company's professional policies and everything. And as a result, they were very defensive of that company. This company that they had just worked for at one point in time in customer service. But that's like the, the problem is that some people, by having to be professional at work, they, that kind of gets ingrained in them that that's normal and okay and while it can be good to have to wear that mask because it means you're not just indulging in your own desires all the time when people take on too much of that that's a problem to me too like when you start thinking that you, you know the person you are professionally is who you actually are you know well you really do become an npc as they say So having to wear different masks is good. Like, it's a good thing. Like, I feel that I benefit greatly from compartmentalization. Like, the things I talk about on here, I would not talk about with 95% of the people I know, most likely. You know, it's good that, it, you know, trust me, it, it's really fucking good for me that I can't be this way all the time. It forces me to strike a balance. And that's true for a lot of other things I do. That's true for a lot of other ways I am. It's good to have to embody something other than just what you want to be. Or that you consider like... It's good that the person you are at home isn't necessarily the person that you can be all the time in every single thing you do. But I think certain kids are kind of getting this impression that the world needs to accommodate that. That thing they want to be when they're exploring their fantasies in these digital realms. I think that what they're really upset about is that they have to wear different masks. And as the world sort of enables, as certain parts of our world enables that behavior, you know, it's not sustainable for one. You know, it's not sustainable. But I think that these kids, it's like, 
they've developed these very strange a very strange sense of identity that's been informed by the fact that like very little of their experience has been in real life and then they're being told that oh we will affirm who you really are and they're doing this behind parents backs i don't know how common it is but it is happening schools are doing it behind parents backs teachers and counselors are encouraging it without parents even knowing and we're not talking about extremely restrictive religious zealot parents we're talking about just normal parents but it is a social contagion and there's a a, pers- uh, a persecution complex ingrained in it and an expectation that the world will accommodate it when i i think that you know i mean it's even amazing that you know you can work in an office where you can decorate your desk and put stickers on your computer and have a Funko Pop doll on your desk. Like, that's even a pretty big change that you can express yourself that way. Because I'm the kind of person, like, I I, I never really like to de- uh, decorate my desk with much. Like, while I'm at work, like, I've always thought, like, you know, I'm here at work. It can be nice to kind of make something yours but I don't really get off on the idea of like expressing my personal interests on my desk because I'm wearing a mask. But you can see we're just just having a Funko Pop doll on your desk. <laughs> just having a Funko Pop on your doll on your desk like that's a slippery slope. And there's people now who probably want to cosplay at work. I don't even know what I'm talking about now. But you can see what I mean, though, where it's like people increasingly think that these identities they've formed, these increasingly strange identities, are something that they need to be all the time. And this comes on the heels of everybody getting tattoos, everybody dyeing their hair. And there's such a strong need to express yourself individually. And as more people do that, many people are going to have a desire to go even further with it. It mutates. It gets more esoteric. And it's not that anybody should tell someone not to do that. It's just that certain people are going to say, hey, you know, we don't believe in this the way you do. And, uh, you know, you know, while, you know, many of these people, you know, they want to, they want to be respectful. You know, I don't know a whole lot of people who just want to disrespect people for the sake of it. There's a lot of people who do that, but I don't know that many people who operate from that place. But even respectful people you know, have a limit. 
And when things go further and further unchecked, people are going to push back on that, and that's a good thing. You know, there is a push and a pull to being part of a society. And because we have more um, opportunity to express ourselves now than ever, there's more push and pull than ever. But if you're pushing, you know, don't resent somebody just for pulling and vice versa. Because that is how you keep things in balance. And right now, you know, what we run the risk of is things going so severely off balance that we can't balance them. You know, we, we can't balance it back again.